This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Demonstrators showing solidarity with Cuban protesters took to the streets in Orlando this week. On Tuesday night, they blocked Cimarron Boulevard for about an hour until police told them to move off the roadway. One person was arrested, but he was later released. Coming up, I'll talk with Orlando area business leader Angel de la Portilla about what the protests mean for Florida's Cuban community. But first, the demonstrations in Florida have put a spotlight on Governor Ron DeSantis' controversial so-called anti-riot bill, which among other things includes tougher penalties for protesters who block roadways. I spoke with Orlando Police Chief Orlando Roland about his approach to the demonstrations. So yesterday is, is the first time I went out for any of the demonstrations because the ones the, pro, the ones that were held prior to that, in all honesty, did not generate that much of a crowd, 50, 100 people. Last night, though, was different. Four to 500 people uh, gathered. Also, what was happening in South Florida, I think, impacted the decision that some of the people who were participating in ours chose to do, which was in South Florida, they were blocking intersections, they were taking intersections, and that happened at Semeron and Curry Ford. We allowed the same thing that we have done in the past for our demonstrators to have some time. Obviously, um, something is very emotional. Uh, people that are very committed to the cause that they're uh, obviously trying to raise attention towards. And, but after a while, Samaran, of course, is a major artery. We requested and asked repeatedly, as we always do, please move off the, the roadway. And after a 15-minute time lapse of repeating that message, we began to move in. And everyone, thankfully, was very compliant. They all moved off the road except for one individual. That individual was arrested. Is he still in jail? No, he's out. He is out. So people are saying this is kind of a test case of the new uh, you know, so-called anti-riot law. Is that how you see it? Well, so here in Orlando, we said from day one when the new changes took place that we will continue to do business as usual. For example, the person who was arrested yesterday was arrested under a city ordinance. The anti-rioting bill has nothing to do with that, right? But we will also, uh, we're very mindful that if someone is committing violence against someone, destroying property, this is a tool that we may exercise if someone does choose to violate the law that way. Does it depend on who's doing the arresting then? If it was like Florida Highway Patrol or something, it would be different? Don't know. You're going to have to ask uh, FHP, but I can say here in the city of Orlando, we will continue doing business as we have done in the past. Are you anticipating further demonstrations? Do you have a strategy for that? So it is our understanding that there will be many demonstrations throughout the country. I, specifically Saturday and Sunday, they're asking for additional demonstrations. I think this is one issue that will continue to receive attention from those who are here, who have ties to Cuba, and some in our community who are very supportive of their cause. Real quick, uh, what's your message to folks who are considering getting out there and demonstrating? As we have always asked, to please do so peacefully, to, pe- to please allow us an opportunity to assist them in making sure that they do it in a safe environment, but to also understand that we don't want to inconvenience others in the process. That there, we, have, we have limitations when it comes to that, but we will do our best to facilitate any demonstrations they want to put together. Is, is the, the line to cross like when you get on the roadway, is that, that it? Well, you know, a major artery like that, South Semeron and Curry Ford, is really the, uh, the, uh, the main uh, entry point into the city from the airport. It, it puts a lot of inconveniences a lot of people. We don't want to see that kind of stuff happen. Again, we'll take a case-by-case uh, when it comes to these, on a case-by-case basis. Chief Rolon, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
Angel De La Portia is the president of Central Florida Strategies. I spoke with De La Portia about what's different about these protests in Cuba, what they mean for Florida's Cuban community and for him personally, sparking a glimmer of hope that he can one day visit a free Cuba. Well, Angel, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. I, I'm glad to be here, Matthew. For those who may not be so familiar with your background, I wonder if you could just explain um, your connection to Cuba and, and why what's happening now is, is so important to you personally. Well, um, my parents uh, were both uh, exiled from Cuba in the early 1960s. Um, my mother was 16 years old, uh, attending school in Cuba, and uh, one day in November of 1960, she and some of her classmates were distributing uh, uh, leaflets, uh, informing uh, their fellow students and other students uh, people at the school that Castro, Fidel Castro was a communist and that Cuba was at risk of becoming a communist nation. So the principal, she was a student at an American Catholic school. The principal found out, uh, contacted my grandfather, and within 48 hours, her, my mother, and my aunt, who was 14 at the time, left Cuba to live with a relative in in Miami, and they never went back. And that was uh, November of 1960. Mm-hmm. My father was from another part of Cuba, and uh, his father was a political figure in his in the city of Matanzas, Cuba. Uh, he was also an attorney and very a very well-known person. And Fidel Castro personally visited him in 1962 to help and ask him to help consolidate power in in that area of Cuba. And uh, my grandfather uh, rejected Fidel Castro. And uh, he and my father and, and my grandmother and my aunt were forced to leave Cuba uh, at that time as well. So I grew up in a, in a household in Miami in a community that was impacted. Uh, their lives were uprooted in the early 1960s. My mother was very young. My mother was only 16. My father was in his early 20s. So their lives, uh, their youth was uprooted. And this is a, this is a very personal, the, the whole Cuba struggle. Uh, and I was born in Miami in the late 60s, and I've, I've seen uh, the struggles of uh, Cuban, thousands of Cuban immigrants that have arrived in, in Miami seeking a better life, seeking freedom. Uh, and uh, this is a very personal uh, time for me as I watch uh, the poor people of Cuba demanding on the streets, demanding freedom, something that uh, has not existed in Cuba for over 62 years. Cuba is one remains one of the last communist nations on earth, and the dictatorship, uh, the, the Castro, even though Fidel Castro has died and his brother has moved on, uh, it's still run by a, a strong communist party there. There, there are no freedoms. Uh, people cannot voice their opinions, and you saw the actions of the Cuban government on, on uh, Sunday. Mm-hmm. Once they saw these protests start gathering throughout Cuba, they immediately shut down the Internet. And uh, people that have, were protesting were jailed, have been abused. There's reports of, uh, of shootings. Police have shot some of the protesters, and what's going on is just completely inhumane. But that's the type of government that the Castros have operated for and lived and created in Cuba over the last 62 years. Angel, uh, what about the, the protests or the demonstrations we're seeing here in Florida? I mean, particularly central Florida, I feel like this is kind of unusual to see um, this much momentum for something like this in Orlando, at least. 
Well, uh, Orlando uh, is the home of many uh, Cuban exiles uh, that have that moved uh, to Orlando in the in the 1960s when the first uh, the first wave of Cuban refugees began arriving in the United States. Uh, it, they made it their home, and uh, others throughout the years have settled in Orlando. Orlando uh, is is you know a great place to work, uh, raise a family, run your business, and, and it's very attractive to Cubans and. Um, they have uh, they have shown support. They're showing support for their uh, brothers and sisters on the island. And you're seeing not only demonstrations in Orlando, you're seeing demonstrations in Tampa. Uh, there are a lot of demonstrations in Miami uh, going on every every day since Sunday. Even today, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually in Miami now, um, and I'm seeing just a lot of uh, Cuban flags and, and cars honking and people on the streets. So uh, and there's worldwide, you, you know, not only in Florida but across the country, in New York, in New Jersey. Uh, there's been protests in, in Spain, uh, in Central America. There are Cubans living all over the world, and uh, the, you know, those have been those that have been able to leave are the fortunate ones. The ones that are unfortunate are the ones that are living there, and uh, they're stuck there. And uh, the, the world is seeing the tremendous uh, response from Cubans all over the world. And Cuban Americans uh, supporting their their uh, their brothers and sisters on the island. Does it feel different this time then? Because it's not the first time that the, there have been protests in Cuba against the the regime there and the kind of economic restrictions people are under. So does this feel like something new, something different? It is different, and there's there's a couple of reasons why it's different. First of all, uh, Cuba uh, they were late in the game, but uh, there's internet available in most. In, at least in the urban parts of the uh, or the developed parts of the island, uh, Cubans have been using internet to communicate with relatives in the United States. They 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 have access to Facebook. I have a distant cousin. Personally, I have a distant cousin that communicates with me on Facebook. Um, I've never met her. We've just you know through Facebook. That's how we communicate. But uh, the internet uh, probably has been the main reason why these protests, because now they're communicating and, they're, and it picked up momentum on Sunday. And then the images, uh, before it broke on the news, people in Miami and across the world were seeing images from Cuba, uh, Facebook postings, Twitter postings, Instagram postings. So the internet is, is a big reason in social media. But also, uh, the, the economic situation is worse than it's ever been. And it's because of the pandemic. The, the pandemic has done something that uh, has prevented travel to Cuba. Uh, travel has been their lifeline. We've had an embargo. The U.S. has had an embargo on Cuba for uh, the last 30 years or longer, and it's restricted travel from the United States to Cuba, travel and trade. Uh, but there's been travel from all over the world, Canada, Mexico, uh, Europe, uh, South America, the entire world is, is able to travel freely to Cuba, and they uh, spend money on the beaches and the hotels, and that money circulates for the economy, and it's given the Cubans there an ability to earn, to make a living. The pandemic has shut down travel globally, and uh, for over a year, uh, there hasn't been any travel from the U.S. or from anywhere, and that is really hampering the economy. I think people are at a point where uh, there's a point of desperation right now. There's no food. There's no uh, there's no work. Uh, there's no you can't make a living, and uh, and that's why they t- they turn to the streets and they're they're angry and they're tired of living with oppression and not e- being able to express their freedoms, express their thoughts, 
express their opinions, and uh, they, that's what happened on Sunday. So, yes, this is very different because we've never seen during the Castro years uh, any type of widespread protest. There's been scattered protests, but the government has always been able to shut it down. I, I think uh, their their reaction was really to shut down the Internet and, and with the hopes of curbing any type of protest. But they're not solving the, over, the overriding issue, which is the economy and the collapse of the economy in Cuba. Do you think lifting some of the sanctions that were imposed by the previous administration would help? Because that, that has been a call from some folks. Well, uh, you know, it's too soon to tell. Uh, we, we first have to, uh, you know, the, the, the embargo really, um, it's a travel, it's a trade and travel embargo, and it basically uh, allows, um, it prevents free travel from Cuba. Cubans uh, that have family there, uh, mm-hmm. travel to visit family members. Uh, that has been restricted because of the pandemic, and that's continued for for a number of years. Even with the embargo, those Cubans uh, Cubans in Miami and in the United States and have had family have traveled there to basically uh, visit family members, and they take, uh, they, they take money and clothing and supplies to help their families survive. Um, at this point, really, we, you have – there's no trust between – the Biden administration and the Cuban government. There's no dialogue at all. Um, this still remains a a, 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 uh, a communist country. It's mm-hmm. been declared a terrorist state by the previous administration. Uh, you can't really uh, try to help uh, terrorists and communists. I think there's got to be a, a plan to uh, provide some sort of exit for the existing government either forcefully or peacefully, for true change to begin in Cuba, a new government to form with the support of the United States, with the support of the international community, uh, before any travel or trade or lifting of any of the restrictions are put in place. Well, on that note, I mean, when you talk about uh, an exit of the existing government, I mean, there have also been calls for military intervention from some quarters. Is that, would that be a a wise move for the United States government to consider that, or is that too far? Well, we don't, you know, we have to see what, what's the reaction. We have to see if the protests continue in Cuba, what type of human rights abuses are taking place. Um, if that continues, uh, the United States certainly could act. They've done so before in other parts of the world when uh, human rights have been threatened. They've done that in, in the former Yugoslavia, Kosovo in the late 1990s. Uh, they've acted also uh, in the, you know, in the early 1990s, they acted to remove uh, General Noriega from Panama. So there's been times when the United States has acted, the military has acted to basically intervene. Um, I, think we, I think the next uh, few days and few weeks are critical. We have to watch what's happening. But certainly if human rights, or there's uh, evidence of, of continued human rights abuses in Cuba, and people are getting shot and killed in the streets, and they're, not, they're getting beaten by the police, certainly it warrants uh, some type of intervention by the United States. And they have to do it quickly, because what we don't want is we don't want the Chinese or the Russians to step in and aid Cuba and start, because, you know, there's history there with the, the, the former Soviet Union right. uh, supported Cuba, and uh, in the early, in 1962, they put missiles in Cuba aimed at the United States, and they've almost triggered a nuclear war. So uh, they're 90 miles from our coast. Uh, 
we have uh, we have the ability to move quickly quickly and, and should do so should there be a should things worsen on the island it seems like it's a I guess a bit of a delicate situation for the current administration to to navigate here though right I mean there's some there's some uh, pitfalls in place whatever they do well I, I think I think it's you know I look at this as a great opportunity for the Biden administration and many Democrats uh, in South Florida and throughout the state are calling for the, you know the president to act they're, they're showing support support for the Cuban people is coming from both sides uh, both from uh, Cubans and from also from a lot of non-cubans and a lot of non-cuban Democrats are, are asking the administration to to listen and and somehow uh, and pay attention to this matter so I believe that this is a tremendous opportunity for the Biden administration uh, to to try to uh, resolve this issue, uh, again, either peacefully or by force. Uh, there, there may need to be some sort of uh, threat made to Cuba that they're going to um, intervene militarily uh, and provide some way of, uh, you know, an exit plan for the existing government to leave Cuba. Maybe they can go to Venezuela or go somewhere else. Mm. And uh, the Americans uh, with the Cubans in Cuba can help form a, a new government over there. If that were the case, if the United States did decide to go that route and and there was some kind of military intervention, would you be concerned about uh, you know your, your family, extended family who are still back in Cuba? Uh, and, and if there were some kind of military uh, expedition into Cuba, like what the impacts might be for them? Well, I wouldn't, you know, it just depends on what, you know, a, a, an intervention, military intervention could, could be done without, uh, you know, bombings of Cuba. It could mm-hmm. be, uh, it could be, you know, you can send the Marines in there, you can send the Navy, Navy SEALs um, and all that. I don't think it's, you know, I wouldn't support a, you know, a bombing campaign of Cuba uh, that could target potentially impact civilians. Uh, but certainly, uh, a targeted, uh, a, t- a targeted attack. You know, we have a, a navy base there. We've had a navy base there for, for uh, a very long time. The um, mm-hmm. Guantanamo base. So we already have a military presence in on the island in Cuba. It's simply just uh, that's U.S. territory, and uh, it's simply that could be uh, the place to launch it from. It's a humanitarian action more than anything. It's you know people are suffering. Uh, they are. They lack food. They mm-hmm. lack basic necessities there uh and and there there's no end to the to the economic crisis i think the pandemic is not going to go away or uh people are not going to return to travel to cuba anytime soon there's not going to be any cruises to cuba Hmm. uh anytime soon so it's simply how are they going to survive right if tourism is your main source of revenue and there are there is no tourism how are you going to survive i wonder if you just kind of pivot back to what's happening here in florida in terms of the kind of solidarity we're seeing from cuban americans here and others who want to support the people in cuba uh how do you see that kind of unfolding over the next few days and weeks do you see these protests continuing growing in strength what, what do you see happening there yes i do i think uh you know what i'm seeing is uh this issue is will continue. I think that there's they're seeing that there's hope for they're optimistic about potential change coming. Uh, some see this as the beginning of the end of the communist government in Cuba, and uh, many of the Cubans that are on the streets they have family, they have mothers and, and brothers and fathers and sisters. They have immediate family there, and they cannot visit their family members. They cannot send any money to their family members. Uh, they're they're desperate, so. Uh, 
it's it's a very painful time for Cubans on the island and also Cubans in the United States. So yes, I do think that the protests will continue. I, I really appreciate the support of uh, a lot of non-Cubans uh, throughout throughout the state, throughout the country, throughout the world. Uh, everyone's paying attention to to what's happening. They're very sympathetic. And everyone is crying for, you know, a change to Cuba and for the ability for Cubans to live freely uh, in their own country, which is what uh, what I'm hoping for. And I, I've never been to Cuba, and I I will never travel to Cuba as long as the communist government is, is there, because any money that is spent in Cuba goes into their pockets. But I hope that at some point I can travel to a free country and see the land where my parents and my grandparents and my family's from. I would love to visit one day, but... Uh, hopefully that day is coming sooner rather than later. Well, Angel de la Portia, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. Angel de la Portia is the president of Central Florida Strategies. Still to come on Intersection, we'll talk with leaders from a Winter Park church and their partners in Haiti about how the assassination of the Haitian president and political unrest is impacting the community there. Stay with us. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise has plunged the country into turmoil. For some insights into what it means for Haitians and the community in central Florida, we talked with members of the St. Margaret Mary Church in Winter Park and the community they work with in Haiti. Ken Furling is the founding director of the Haiti Mission for St. Margaret Mary. He's been involved with missions to Haiti for two decades. Jean Bonny Delorge is the church's director of operations in Jack Mal, Haiti. He's a founding member of a group called CAUSE, which works on conflict mitigation and leadership. Wesley Zephyr is a Haitian currently studying at Rollins College. And John Rife is a member of the St. Margaret Mary Congregation, who's been doing mission work in Haiti since 2008. Ken Furling begins the conversation. From a, a faith point of view, they, they can show us a thing or two. But we focus on education, uh, economic development, um, uh, health issues, and uh, we've, we find that the Haitian people are similar to folks that, that uh, we hear about in the Depression. They're, they're, they're competent, they're eager, they have a good work ethic, but there are just no opportunities. And so whenever, whatever projects we have, we try to, to uh, first of all, uh, ask them what they feel they need, but then approach it in a sustainable way so that after we get on a plane and get out, the project keeps going. So, John, let me turn to you then. One of the groups you're part of is, is CAUSE. Uh, I understand and you, and you focus on conflict mitigation and leadership. Um, just reflecting on what's happening in Haiti right now, uh, how, how do you see what's happening and how, how does this kind of, I guess, impact the work that you're, you're doing right now? Uh, thank you very much. It is a very interesting question. And cause it is an organization, uh, we have created cause because we have uh, seen that there are a lot of kids in Haiti. They don't, they don't go to school and they, they don't even eat enough. And we decided to, to set up cause just, it is like executive acting together on the future of the, it is like the, 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 the English translation, if I want to say that. And that's why we have been created. Cause is, is running uh, 
one of the program of St. Margaret Mary now, that is the youth program. And the focus is on, on conflict resolution and just to work with, with the kids, just to, to let them to, to understand how they can uh, act just to, to solve a problem when there is a conflict between, between two people. And now the situation in Haiti is, is, a, is a situation that is a very complicated now. It is the, the very first time we are, we are seeing such a situation. And as there are a lot of, a lot of uh, gangs, a lot of violence seen now, and that makes the, the work uh, not very, very easy to be done. Because uh, as you see, when the kids are facing all those problems, it is very difficult for them, for them to, to, to be comfortable and to do such active buzzing. But they, don't, they, they can't uh, go wherever they want because they, mm -hmm. are, they are fear of, of violence. And that's why, for example, if we have a meeting uh, from JAPMA to OLA, OLA is a, the part of... of uh, of Chapman, where St. Margaret Mary is working now, uh, we we as as uh, adults we are a little bit afraid to go there mm -hmm. because we don't know what we will meet on on the streets. There are a lot of guns, a lot of gangs. Mm -hmm. You see that that makes the work a little bit difficult. Now we are living with a little bit of of fear, the mm -hmm. fear of the violence now in Haiti. With the the killing of the president, does that does that kind of make the situation a little more dangerous? Do you think for the 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 people that you work with? When you say the the death of the president, I would like to take uh, two seconds of silence. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, the death of the president is making things a little bit dangerous now. Mm -hmm. Why? It is because now in Port-au-Prince, it is not very, things are not very easy there. But because if you, if you want to go to a place in Port-au-Prince, you don't know what will happen. Because there, mm -hmm. there are some, 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 some gains they receive from funds from so the, the government. Uh, that makes their things now the government, the, the president is is dead. They are they are much more violent. They are much more violent now. That's why. But uh, but at Ole, that's the only thing that uh, uh, impeded a, a good break to Ole. It is because uh, there is there is the fear to go there right now because mm -hmm. you don't know what can happen. So, John, I want to bring you into this conversation. Uh, it sounds like you're are coming at the at this work from a couple of perspectives. One is is, is the food security issue, and I know that as you know your, your background in the restaurant business in in Orlando, you kind of bring, bring a unique perspective there. But um, how does your role sort of fit into into this project? Like, what is the the mission that you ha that you feel that you have in in this work in Haiti? Yeah, you know. I I think obviously getting involved, um, as Ken said, was sort of you get bit and you're you want to come back, you know, time and time again as you start to fall in love with the people here. So part of it is trying to find ways that 
whatever our skill sets are can be utilized in a way that that provides some sustainable uh, programming for the, the country and, and the people we work with. Agriculturally, there's you know the, most of those people in our area are small scale farmers, and so giving them some very basic training, which to us that we're teaching at East End Market or the chefs are talking about local food, is is pretty advanced. Um, you know, we've been able to work with local agronomists. So people, and this kind of goes to what Ken said, we want to find people in the country that have solutions for the country and then support them. We don't want to come with outside, a bunch of outside ideas and, and think that's going to work. Um, so a young agronomist from Jacmel approached us and said, hey, we really think we could create some economic stability for farmers if we taught them several things. You know, the farmers are on the steepest slopes because it's the poorest part of the soil. So their, their soil is always eroding. So teaching them how to keep the soil from eroding, how to use organic amendments, um, how to do pest management, how to do small nurseries to raise the plants in a safe place and then um, move them out. So I think seeing it from a, having been involved with agriculture previously and then now seeing the fruits of that labor is pretty cool. Um, you know, they've been able to quadruple their income with some very basic training and it's all based on a program that they've put together. It's in their language, it's run by a local guy. So I think in all of this, and John Benny is a good example, you know, he came through the peace program that St. Margaret Mary created and with other young leaders, and they, they self-organized and created cause to, to further the, the vision that they had for solving the problems that Haiti had. So our goal really is to just be support, to, to say, you can do it, we can help, to not try to come in top down with a bunch of, you know, um, projects, but to really see those projects come through the, the real needs on the ground that they have. And I would say just to add some color to what John Benice said, you know, we just discovered, obviously, you know, running this mission during COVID was very challenging. I mean, it was almost a year between visits there. And, but the programs were set up and the people on the ground there are so equipped at this point that, through Zoom, thankfully, and, and WhatsApp, we were able to still run the mission. And that's great for us and them, but, but moving within the country already was very challenging before the assassination. And, you know, Ken, thankfully, did some research recently about us being able to ship some things down there um, fairly inexpensively, which is good because everything we carry down there is on, you know, in our bags on planes. But the danger of going from Jacmel to Port-au-Prince is so high that we don't want to endanger our people there by asking them to go pick up whatever goods we could ship in. So to John Benny's point, even doing the, the normal programming that we'd be trying to do is, is hampered by the fact that there's such unrest that it's not safe for our people to move freely about the country. So are with already in a tremendous amount of challenges to add that immobility and fear to it really causes some hurdles. Wesley, Zafir, when you see what's happening back in Haiti, what goes through your mind? I mean, this is this is um, extremely sad to see what's going on um, back to Haiti. And if we go back to the assassination, to see the president, the, 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 we will say the highest person in the country, and doesn't have security enough for himself. So... When it comes to the whole population, we can see those populations, um, obviously, they don't have anything um, also. So this is sad um, 
it's it's really sad for me to see what's going on and and sometimes I'm even asking myself if it's really real to see exactly to hear because I've been watching the news and listening to the news and you know because I'm you know closely looking what's going on and it's 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 super sad to see what's going on in Haiti right now do you feel like once you complete your studies you're going to be able to take those skills back to Haiti and um and sort of use them to to help build up the country is that is that your plan long term it's it's a question that i really so many people ask me um all the time um but you know when 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 you were born in a place so you really would like to see um the place in in progress right so um like the skill that I'm earning here in the U.S., if anyhow I can help, I can contribute what I learned from here in the con- um, in the country. I'll be happy to to contribute. You know, so um, yeah. Ken, it sounds like from what uh, John was saying last year was was a bit of a challenge just because of the the, the problems thrown up by COVID. This is like an extra layer of of challenge for the work that uh, Saint Margaret Mary is doing. Uh, is this kind of like what you expected going into this? No, no. Although the history, Haiti has a history of ups and downs. Uh, after uh, in the eighties, when Duvalier left, you had uh, a series of presidents, Aristide. So, so this kind of thing, roller coaster, is 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 not unusual. But as John Bonis says, this particular situation is really unique. Uh, I've never had the experience where I couldn't walk down the streets in Port-au-Prince, and, and I always felt very safe. Now, uh, we don't even even uh, get out of the airport. Uh, to, to We just go on a little plane to Jacmel. So this is a very, very unusual situation, and I, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic of the next... Uh, several months, quite frankly. Jean Bonny, uh, Ken was saying he, he thinks it could be a couple of months before things settle down a wee bit. What do you think? Like, what do you think the next couple of months is going to be like for you and your team there? Uh, I can't say a couple of months, but because I would like to see this situation better now, right now. But. Mm-hmm. I hope things are going to be okay and the situation will be will be okay too. But uh, we are a little bit uh, not comfortable with the situation, of course, yes. And in two, in two months, maybe something will be done or maybe not. Because now we are we are about six days after the the death of the president, there isn't a president yet now. But we don't yeah. know how things are going to be in two months. If they will be able to get a new president, or if we will be able to get a new president in in in, in a couple of days. But if, if that must be done before, and for the the new president to to do everything just to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. of insecurity uh, to, to make us comfortable. So, Wisley, is a fear. What would you like people in the U.S. who don't know so much about Haiti or don't 
don't have the kind of connection that the uh, parish at St. Margaret Mary in Orlando have with Haiti. What, what would you like them to know about the country? And especially now when people are paying attention to the headlines, but in a week or two, maybe people won't be paying so much attention. Like, What would your message be to, uh, to people in the U.S. about Haiti? I think in on the light that you know G started talking um it's it's a bunch of great people. Um they are very competitive, um they are ego, they want to work, they they have a um very nice personality, but unfortunately that the, 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 the country um doesn't offer them the opportunity. So that's why so so many have to leave the country to go to um different places around the world just to looking for job. So um I think um, Haitian, as everybody who, co- who like work and or have Haitian friends, they always say those people they, they they're hard worker. They know how they know how to work and and they know how to to live with other people. They they have love. They have great hearts. Just finally, John uh, Rife, what would what would you want people to take away from this conversation? You know, beyond the the headlines that we're hearing and seeing about Haiti right now. Haiti is, is such a, a beautiful place. I mean, I, I'm sure this is true of Afghanistan and Iraq and other places that people think of as dangerous or fraught with peril. You know, yes, there are some challenges, but, but, but the country, I mean, once you get out of the borders of the main city, you know, it's, it's people just like every American trying to get their child a good education and to offer opportunity for them and hope they find a good job and to Whistley's point, you know, there, there just aren't many opportunities in Haiti for Haitians. And so understanding some of the sort of macro forces that went into that, it was the first successful slave revolt in history. Haiti was a probably one of the worst, highest levels of slave abuse in recorded history. So it was great that they were able to free themselves from that yoke. And unfortunately, it happened in a time in history where the world powers, I mean, us included, were a slave economy. And so we weren't certainly going to go support them. And they ousted the French and the French were our friends in the revolution. So sadly, Haiti was left to deteriorate because there was no way to do foreign trade. They've really been hamstrung, not of their own doing, really. I mean, so I think that's that's the biggest takeaway is, is to say that Haiti is somewhat the ongoing victim of macro political powers that um, have made it very challenging for it to, to get back on its feet and stay on its feet. And so, you know, it's so close to our country. I mean, it's shocking to hop on a flight from Miami and in an hour and a half be in Haiti. I mean, you're, you're there. It's so close. It's our neighbor. And we have a very good Haitian community in Central Florida. And, and I think around Carnival and that time of year, they come to the fore and it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful culture. And I think it's worth people exploring. And for me, I would hope for some more stability so that people can begin to visit to enjoy the beauty that the country has to offer both, you know, in its geography and waterfalls, but also in the hearts of its people. Well, John Reif, uh, parishioner at St. Margaret Mary, uh, thanks so much for your insights. Appreciate that. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Matthew. We've also been speaking with Ken Furling. He's the founding director of the Haiti Mission for St. Margaret Mary. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for your time as well. You're welcome. And Wesley Zephyr is uh, working on a degree at Rollins College. Wesley, thanks so much for joining us and for your insights too. It was my pleasure and thank you for having me. And we also heard from uh, Jean Bonny Delorge, who's the Director of Operations and uh, a translator for the St. Margaret Mary program in Haiti. Up next, we might think we know sharks, but how much do we really know about the apex predators of the oceans? 
More on that after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. It's Shark Week on the Discovery Channel, and we might think we know sharks, but how much do we really know about the apex predator of the oceans? Back in 2019, I spoke with Dr. Toby Daly-Engel, marine biologist at Florida Tech who spent years researching sharks. I talked to her about the myths and misconceptions, what we still have to learn about these animals, and what they can teach us. We're going to listen back to that conversation. Toby Daly-Engel is an assistant professor of marine sciences at the Florida Institute of Technology. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So there's quite a lot going on in your area of shark research. One of the things that uh, you've been working on is a shark conservation lab. Tell me what's happening there. Well, it's really exciting. We, as you mentioned, have a lot going on. Because it's summertime, because it's a season of high activity for both people and sharks, but also in a larger sense because our environment is changing. And here in Florida, especially here on the Indian River Lagoon, we are really at the forefront of seeing that change and seeing how it's impacting a lot of the fish and other animal populations. What kind of changes are you seeing already? Like, are are you already seeing some things that are having an impact on sharks? Because they are the tippy top of the food chain, right? They are. They are the apex predators. And as such, they're really responsible for keeping all the other levels of the food web healthy by controlling those populations. And so some of the things that people are seeing is changes in how the sharks are using their environment. People may not know that sharks actually have babies very differently from other fish. Most fish, like your goldfish that you might have at home, just kind of spawns a bunch of tiny, tiny eggs into the water in kind of a cloud. And over time, those eggs become larvae and then hatch into adult fish. Sharks actually reproduce a lot more like mammals, like humans, than other fish. In fact, sharks get pregnant, they have uteruses, and most of them give birth to live young called pups. So one of the things that the pups need is for the first few years of life, they use shallow inshore areas like bays and lagoons as nursery habitat. So the mamas, like bull sharks, for instance, mama bull sharks will come into the Indian River Lagoon and other shallow embayments to give birth because their pups then have not just a lot of little food that the pups need to eat, but they're also sheltered from predators, especially big sharks. And so our lab really focuses on how these animals are using the nursery habitat because even if these big sharks are going way offshore, say to the Bahamas, they're still going to have to come back and use this nursery habitat in order to give birth. So one thing scientists have already noticed is that there are baby sharks starting to use nursery habitat further north than we've ever seen them before. So way up into North Carolina, where it used to be that bull sharks didn't go that far north at all. So what we're doing in our lab here at Florida Tech is partnering with other people who are studying shark movement, especially in these inshore nursery areas, and looking at how populations are changing. So we're coupling with people who are 
fishing for sharks and putting out tags and studying the movement of these animals. And we're using genetics as another tool to look and see if populations are actually shifting north in response to climate change. What about the health of the Indian River Lagoon itself? Because in the last couple of years, there have been a lot of headlines about, um, you know, red tide, blue-green algae. There have been those terrible kind of episodes of fish die-offs in the Indian River Lagoon and the Banana River. What are you seeing as far as impacts of those events on shark populations? But that's another really interesting thing because sharks have amazing immune systems and we're really just learning more about shark immune systems. But one of the things that happens to sharks is that they seem to have more resistance to toxins like come up in harmful algal blooms like red and brown tide. Sharks seem to be able to handle higher levels of toxin than other types of animals like bony fish and uh, marine mammals like dolphins and whales. Now, there's a lot that we don't know because when there's mortality, a lot of regular fish, they have air bladders inside them and they may just float. Sharks tend to sink to the bottom, so they may be experiencing mortality that we're not seeing, and they do definitely die. But there are some fundamental differences that separate them on a genetic and evolutionary level that we're trying to understand because in... In the end, we need to know what specific environmental factors can impact how these animals are using this nursery area. Because even if the adult populations are fine, if the animal doesn't have its nursery grounds, then that species is going to be in trouble. It sounds like, from from what you're saying, there is still much to learn about sharks, but is part of what you do also trying to teach people about what we do know about sharks and trying to dispel some of those myths? Absolutely. There is so much that we don't know about sharks. It's really amazing, considering that they are some of the oldest animals still living on Earth. Sharks, as a group, have been around over 400 million years. That's before there were even trees. You would think that we would know a whole lot by now. Humans have been around for a little while, and we've been studying sharks that whole time. But even now, we're still finding out a lot about their very basic biology, including how many species are out there. But the problem is, not just scientists, but regular people don't know a whole lot about sharks because we don't see them a whole lot, and it's kind of normal to be scared of them. I mean, they can eat you, so... A lot of people are kind of scared and that maybe they don't really want to know more. So part of my job that's hugely important is talking to people about sharks because I find them really interesting. And so any chance I get, I love talking with people about why sharks are cool. And even though there is the possibility that they can eat you, they won't. And so once people start becoming more familiar with how amazing the animal is, or even going to an aquarium and getting to see the shark, people start thinking, wow, okay, these things aren't so scary. They're actually really cool. And without them, our ocean would be way, way, way less healthy than it is. And there have been some uh, shark encounters uh, not too long ago. I mean, it's what do you kind of glean from those things hitting the headlines? Shark attack makes great headlines. It's true. But what people don't realize is because it gets so much media attention, it's hard to really state how rare shark attack is. Shark attack is incredibly rare. It is the most common between 1 and 3 p.m., not because that's when sharks are hungry, but because that's when people are in the water. 
So here in Florida, we have a lot of great bathers. People love coming to our beaches. It's a beautiful place to live. And anytime you're in the water, there is the chance of coming up against a shark. But shark attack depends on people, not sharks. The more people in the water, the more chance there are for shark attack. But in actuality, you're more likely to be struck by lightning, not just once, but three times in a row, than bitten by a shark. Do you feel like the tide is turning a little bit? Is some of the kind of outreach and the education work that you do sticking and, and, and so people aren't maybe thinking that a shark is going to be something they like the shark they would see in Jaws, for example, but an interesting creature that is maybe not as scary as it's made out to be? I hope so. I mean, I think that a lot of the media attention that sharks get tends to hinge on that sense of fear. You know, it's, it's exciting from an entertainment perspective. But I think it's really possible to kind of enjoy sharks in that, in that sense and also appreciate them um, as an important part of the ecosystem. And I think that in that sense, the tide has definitely turned, so to speak, because people are listening to the voices that are also saying, okay, they're not just in the news, they're also in, in, in trouble. They are of conservation concern. Without them, we would potentially not have all of the other diversity that they have in the ocean. So I think there are still those voices out there that are saying, oh, shark attacks, they're increasing, they're, you know, coming for you. Uh, But there's now more than ever other voices that are alternatives like mine that are out there saying, yeah, they're cool. They're awesome. They're amazing. But look, they're also ancient. And one individual Greenland shark could be 400 years old. So that sort of stuff that we're finding out now, I think, is sort of catching the imagination. Well, Toby Daly-Engel, Assistant Professor of Marine Sciences at Florida Institute of Technology, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. That interview first aired on Intersection in July 2019. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for today's show from Danielle Pryor and from our intern, Brittany Caldwell. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived shows at wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.